Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the blessing of the Lord's Day, what it is, a day of rest, a day of assembling in your name to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for this high privilege. We even thank you that you have um, for us to find the Sabbath Uh, not on the seventh day, but on the first day of the week, concurrent with the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so uh, we thank you that as we approach an Easter season, uh, that we assemble on this first day of the week in worship and celebration of our risen Lord. We pray today that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Last week, um, I, I know for some of you it was not anything new, uh, but I realized after teaching it, um, while it was not necessarily something new, a number of you, you had um, perhaps either forgotten the doctrine or uh, it, was, it was nice to have a fresh reminder of this testimony. And uh, so I want to do just a very brief review uh, and then move into an expansion Uh, an elaboration upon what we looked at last week, but what we looked at last week was starting with the topic of what is Scripture? What is Scripture? And and we might uh, describe that as defining the canon, uh, defining the canon of Scripture, uh, which our confession uh, refers to as or defines as uh, Genesis through Revelation, Genesis through Malachi, Matthew through Revelation, and our uh, Westminster Confession also, uh, which uh, using the term, uh, borrowing this from uh, Michael Kruger, uh, our confession uses the term of self-authenticating. self Authenticating. The confession says in the first chapter, point four, the authority of the Holy Spirit for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore it is to be received because it is the Word of God. And uh, maybe you could, you could underline that because that's, that's the emphasis. It is the Word of God, therefore it is self-authenticating. Important aspects of this self-authentication uh, is, as we discussed last year, the, the providential exposure of it. If, if the Word of God is the Word of God, then God will see to it that it is given to man and that it is received by man as, in fact, the Word of God. This speaks to the intention of God, God's intention of delivering an inscripturated Word to His people. It also speaks to God's ability. If God is God, then it stands to reason that He will ensure that His people receive His very Word of God. Yes. So, yes, yeah, so we're going to get to that. So, so the extra books would be uh, the, the, the brilliant literature, the amazing literature of the Apocrypha. 
um, which is, is lovely to read and, uh, and, and, and certainly worthy of including within a compilation of literature. Um, it's not scripture, but we're going to talk about that. We will not be talking about that today. We won't be talking about that tomorrow, uh, next Sunday, but we are going to get to it uh, in, in sort of the, the course of events. And the reason why I'm saying that is because that's the, in following, I'm not following per se uh, the points of the Westminster Confession, but the Westminster Confession, I believe it's in point three or five, actually specifies that. So we're, we're, we're going to get to that. So God delivers His, his Word to His people. Um, now, with that being said, and as one person uh, brought up after class, it, it would seem then uh, that this leads to, in terms of logic, a circular argument. If Scripture is Scripture because Scripture says it's Scripture, isn't that a circular argument? Well, think about it this way. It is a circular argument if it's not the authoritative Word of God. It's kind of like this, and this may be a lousy example, but hopefully it will be helpful to you. Um, Someone says... Uh, and actually someone has literally said this to me, it sounds to me like your God is an egomaniac. He's always talking about His glory. He is to be worshipped. He even says that He's worthy to be worshipped, that He is all-glorious, on and on and on. So the question would be, regarding that topic, is God an egomaniac? No. Why? Because he is God, right? So, so it would only be true that he's an egomaniac or whatever kind of, of pop word you want to throw in there in, in, into the example. Uh, but that would only be true if he's not God. If, if, if I walked in here and started saying the things that God says about himself, you'd lock me up. But God says the things that he says about himself because it's true. The same, is the, the same case is made in regards to God's Word. The reason why, uh, unlike, for example, uh, uh, Hilda gave the example of Roman Catholicism, while, while we do not put the authority of the church above the Word of God, saying it is the Word of God because the church says it is the Word of God, the reason that we don't is because the Word of God is authoritative over the church. Ergo, it is not dependent upon the testimony of the church, although the church does testify, and we're going to talk about that, but that it is the Word of God because it is the Word of God. And so it would be a circular argument were it not the complete sovereign authority over what God has said, because it is what God has said. Yes? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, he 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 is the one and only uh, God, right? As we testify, incidentally, note how that comes up whenever we affirm our faith in worship. And note that the historic creeds will always point back to that. That's good. All right, so back on topic. So the attributes then of, the, of canonicity that we're, go, that we're going to look at, and we're going to look at these in, in order um, both today 
and next Sunday uh, on Easter Sunday. Uh, we're not going to have Sunday school. We're just going to have breakfast and a time of fellowship. Uh, but, but the order that we're going to look at this is we're going to look at the divine qualities of Scripture. We're going to look at the apostolic origins of Scripture. And we are going to look at the church reception. Not to be confused with the church reception that we're going to have coming up in a couple of weeks, right? Now, how the church receives it. Um, we're going to look at these three uh, summary categories of the self-authenticating Scripture. But again, and I'm, I'm doing this to the point of, of redundance, and that is, is that these are attributes. In other words, Scripture is not Scripture because these have authority over it, but Scripture, which is the Word of God in and of itself, has and displays these qualities. On ter in terms of divine qualities, which we're going to look at today, Books that are used as authoritative uh, rev reveal themselves to the community of believers, that is the church. So we might think of divine qualities, if, if you're wanting one-word summaries, we might think of it as like the function, the function of the self-authentication of Scripture. In terms of ap apostolic origin, we might think of this in terms of, here's your big word for the day, Ontological. Ontological. Meaning, in this sense, that the books given by God, are, are, they are given as the redemptive historical deposit. God Himself is the one that has given them. And, to, or to state it negatively, we could say that books unattached from prophetic and apostolic origins are eliminated. And that's to your point in terms of the Apocrypha. And we're going we're gonna to get into this in much greater depth as to uh, how we feel confident of what Scripture is and what Scripture is not and, and certain things like that. But it, again, just in a summary level, uh, apostolic origins then attach themselves, we would say, ontologically to the Scripture that God has delivered. And then finally, church reception. And we might think of this as exclusive. A one word to summarize this being exclusive, meaning the church has said historically, this is Scripture, this is not Scripture, so forth. And so books received and recognized by the consensus of the church then is what we mean by church reception, or to put it negatively, books of widespread and continuous disagreement are eliminated. So, for example, uh, it was probably 20 years ago, but, but uh, not too long ago, uh, had come up a new controversy over the Gospel of Thomas. <gasps> oh, should we include the Gospel of Thomas? Should Christians be reading the Gospel of Thomas? Do you know how many years the Gospel of Thomas has been rejected by the Christian church? And I, and I can remember thinking, it had to have been less than 20 years ago, because it was fairly close to when I was... In, in seminary. But anyway, uh, you know, I'm studying this and I'm like, holy cow, we've been rejecting the gospel of Thomas for what, 1600 years. But we don't know our history. 
And so when something pops up like that, our, our modern culture goes, ooh, this is new. Let's, let's let Dan Brown write a book about it and talk about Jesus was married. That's new. That's fresh, said no church historian, right? We know by church history that this has all been dealt with over and over and over again. But the point is, is that there are books that have been continuously rejected by the Christian church, and we'll talk about that in greater depth. Okay, so what I want to do today is I just want us to focus on this topic of the divine qualities of Scripture. The divine qualities of Scripture, and again, <clears throat> my one word uh, for you if to understand this uh, would be function, right? Divine qualities, how do they function? And let's look at these, and I've got these on, on your handout, but just as a real quick introduction to understand how this has been processed through the years. For example, uh, quoting from uh, early church father, one of the Greek fathers, Oregon, he said, quote, If anyone ponders over the prophetic sayings, it is certain that in the very act of reading and diligently studying them, his mind and feelings will be touched by a divine breath and he will recognize the words he is reading are not utterances of man, but the language of God. What was Oregon saying? He was saying, when you read Scripture, you recognize it. The true believer will recognize it as Scripture. That reminds me, I meant to, to say this, because this also came up after our class last week. Um, I want to pause insertion. Um, I want to remind you that I am only talking about how Christians receive Scripture. That's really important, and I, I should have emphasized that. I am not talking about trying to convince a non-Christian that Scripture is Scripture, which I, I've typically found a fool's errand. I'm only talking about how Christians who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit how we understand how we have received Scripture. And if you think that there's not a difference, go back, please go back and listen to my lecture last week. Uh, because the point is, is that it's different. It's remarkably different. And again, I've said this before, and I know it's heavy reading, but Calvin goes on ad nauseum on this point over and over again, quoting from the church fathers, drawing from uh, the example of the historic church over and over again. Christians know it's the Word of God. The Holy Spirit, in fact, does exactly what Oregon says. It confirms, it affirms it. Secondly, uh, from, the from the Reformers. And there were a number of quotes that I could have drawn from, um, but I thought this was a good one. Um, one of the earliest of confessions is the Belgic Confession. And the Belgic Confession, uh, which predates the Westminster Confession by quite a bit, said, quote, this is chapter 5 of the Belgic Confession, the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they prove themselves to be from God. And again, that's, that's, the, that's the early Reformed Church, the early Protestant Church, uh, saying in its confession, this is how the Scripture works. It testifies to itself, and Christians, 
Not non-Christians, but Christians receive it as such. And then finally, I want to re-quote, because I'm going to refer to this several times. I want to re-quote for you, and I think I've got it printed out on your bulletin, uh, point five of chapter one of the Westminster Confession. Um, again, one of the beautiful things about the Westminster Confession is, is that it was uh, toward the end, and some theologians would say the peak of scholastic Christian theology in that it had the benefit, the Westminster Assembly had the benefit of the creeds and confessions that had gone before it. And so the, the, the Westminster Assembly was able to draw upon all of these creeds and confessions in their crafting of language uh, in terms of Reformed theology. But here's what it states. It's long. Bear with me, but listen closely. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy, Holy Scripture. And the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. Now, if, if, if you're a, a fairly decent uh, stu student of, of English grammar, um, you, you know that, that three, four, like 80% of that paragraph was leading up to the last statement. The, the, the last clause of that gigantuous, <laughs> is that even a word? Uh, paragraph is to say this, that Scripture testifies to itself from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. And so you're going to want to hold on to that uh, statement, theological statement from the confession as we move through this. And I want to start here. I want to start with the beauty and excellency of Scripture. The beauty and excellency of Scripture. And I'm going to talk in coming weeks about more practical matters in terms of, of how we approach Scripture and so forth. But, but one of the cautions that I'll get into at that time and I'll just sort of, of, of tip my hat at this morning is, is that within, um, within Christianity, there is a temptation to approach the Word of God like a, uh, like a manual, like a, the owner's manual to your lawnmower. And there is a temptation to try to, to pick and choose and borrow things out of Scripture uh, to, to feed my fancy or to deal with whatever I may be dealing with at the time. And, and I have said before and will continue to say that is a remarkably dangerous thing to do. Uh, but one of the things that we often miss in treating the Bible like a lawnmower manual is we miss the beauty of Scripture. 
And while we are working with, reading from, studying from a translation uh, from the original Hebrew, from the original Greek, it nevertheless, as the Word of God, carries the attribute of beauty, of excellence, of perfection. Again, the paragraph that I just read to you from the confession puts it this way. The heavenliness of the matter. Isn't that a beautiful way to, to de- describe God's Word? Is, is, is the, the substance of what we're reading in is, is heavenly. We might say it's divine. The majesty of its style, the many incomparable excellencies and entire perfection thereof. As I said last week, what we're not saying is that it is the pinnacle of the language in which it is written. As I said before, the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. That is not the pinnacle of the Greek language. Uh, You've missed it there. You've got to go back several generations to Attic Greek and to uh, the writings of Aristotle and Plato and on and Homer and and um, and 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 Virgil, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is, pause there. I've forgotten the era. Verge of the Aeneid. Yeah, that'd be the same period. Um, so the point is, is that what we're not saying is the pinnacle of the language in which it is drawing from, but rather it is the pinnacle of God's conveyance, right? Or not even, we wouldn't even use the word pinnacle. We would just say that it is beauty in and of itself as it has been given. Um, think about it this way. So many of us are familiar with uh, Psalm 19. And, and I think many of us probably have those first couple of verses in Psalm 19 uh, memorized in some form. Uh, you know, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. But later in Psalm 19, it switches from God's general revelation to what? His special revelation, right? And it says in the seventh verse, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And if you've ever done a study of of the poetry of Psalm 19, you know that that, uh, the psalmist here is using synonyms. Uh, For all of these synonyms, uh, while you might uh, be tempted to go in and say, well, let's look at all what these different things mean, poetically, he's just using different words that essentially are synonymous to convey one true big picture. The Word of God is perfect, sure, uh, right, uh, uh, pure, enlightening us, so forth and so on. Or... And many of us would think of Psalm 119, right? Uh, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth, or your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. We could draw from a number of different scriptures, all of which convey the idea of the high point of scripture. And it is through this testimony of the gospel, as the confession puts it, that, quote-unquote, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation. We cannot know how we may be saved other than the special revelation of God in His Word. And so, when we go to God's Word, we need to remember that we're going to something that God has given us. 
And we're not simply going to it like a manual. We're going to it as the literal Word of God. It's beautiful. It is excellent. There are, are times uh, where, and I'd cur- encourage you to do the same if you don't, there are times uh, in uh, my daily devotions where uh, I, I'm on a mission to get my quote-unquote Bible reading done for the day, and there are times where I just have to pause, pause to just drink it in, to just meditate on it. There'll be something that grabs me in Scripture, and I'll think, slow down, John, this is glorious. And oftentimes, practically speaking, it's something uh, that I need in that moment. But God's Word is both beautiful and excellent. This next category that I, I want us to think about is the power and efficacy of God's Word. The power and efficacy. God's Word is indeed powerful. It is indeed effective. But it's not just what Scripture says. Think about this with me. It's not just what Scripture says. It's what Scripture does. That's the point of power and efficacy. God's Word, for example... And we don't have time to go on to all these uh, Scripture verses, but I think I've given them to you on your handout. Um, God's Word, for example, gives wisdom. God's Word, for example, gives joy to the heart. God's Word gives light in the darkness. God's Word gives understanding to the mind. God's Word gives peace and comfort. God's Word exposes sin and guilt. On and on and on we could go describing what God's Word gives. And I've just, I just barely scratched the surface with these examples uh, that I've given. But I love the way that Christian philosopher Paul Helm uh, puts it. He says, quote, It is not simply that the Scriptures say that they are the revelation of God that is the evidence of their being so, but also that they function as that the Word of God. One element of Scripture functioning as the Word of God is the idea that the Bible purports to give an analysis or diagnosis of the reader. Pause there for just a second before I continue to read. You see what he's saying there. One of the things that Scripture does is it dissects me, right? The unbeliever may go to Scripture and go, I'm going to dissect the Word of God, like Thomas Jefferson. I'm going to cut out what I don't like and so forth. But, but when the believer goes to the Word of God, we don't go to dissect the Word, do we? The Word dissects us, so to speak. Helm goes on to say, Connected with this is the power of the Scriptures to raise and satisfy certain distinctive needs in the reader. And I'll talk about today in my sermon, but we, we go to the word desperate. We go to the word thirsty. We go to the word needy, and the word does what we need in us. He goes on to say, Connected with this is the displaying in Scripture of excellent moral standards, and connected with this is the provision of new motivations to reach out for the newly set standards. In other words, what Paul Helm is saying there is that Scripture not only testifies to itself, but it does its work in us. And as we read the Word of God and as the Holy Spirit works in us through the Word of God, oftentimes you may not be thinking about it analytically, but in your soul you may think, wow, this is the Word of God because it will not leave me alone. It grips me. It shakes me. 
Sometimes I feel as if the Word of God throws me down to the ground as if to get my attention over and over again. As we submit ourselves to Scripture, we find that Scripture, in fact, does its work. Anglican N.T. Wright says, Those who read these writings discovered from very early on that the books themselves carried the same power the same authority and action that had characterized the initial preaching of the Word. And that's a beautiful uh, Protestant understanding of Scripture, that we're saying that the inscripturated Word of God, the canon of Scripture that you and I have, it is just as powerful, it is just as effective as if we were sitting there on the banks of the Jordan listening to John the Baptist. In fact, more powerful because we have a complete canon. Or listening to the prophet Isaiah preach. Or listening to the prophet Jeremiah cry. Or so forth. On and on. The point that, that, that Ride is, is making is that the church realized very early on in terms of the New Testament canon and in terms of reception of the Old Testament that <clears throat> in fact it does its work and it is the power of God as it is the Word of God. And so this helps us, if you think about it, this whole study started out with the study of the means of grace. Now, what are the outward and ordinary means of grace? That's a question. Word? Sacrament? Probably say, I'm going to keep asking this so we have it memorized, right? Words, sacrament, and prayer. So, so the, the, those are the, the outward and ordinary means of grace as defined by our shorter catechism. And when we think about the Word of God, we think about Scripture as a means of grace, then we think about it in terms of, not exclusively, but we think about it in terms of its power and its efficacy. I mean, think about it this way, and, and, and we do not have time to go into this, but, but I strongly encourage you to read these questions and answers in our larger catechism. Uh, these are, bril- these are br- brilliantly asked questions and amazing answers. But our shorter catechism, if you were to go, and if we had time, we would, if you were to go to question number 155, it would ask this, How is the Word made effectual in salvation? How does God use the Word of God to to save us? How is this possible and how does God uh, use that? Just to to hit it briefly, uh, the answer to that question says, The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word. An effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to His image and subduing them to His will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Wow! You mean the Word of God does all of that? Indeed, the Holy Spirit does all of that through the Word of God, through the reading of the Word of God, and especially the preaching. Or think about the question in our larger catechism, is the Word of God to be read by all? Short answer, yes. Expanded answer, 
go to the larger catechism and see how they make a distinction between private and public reading. Or how is the Word of God to be read? How should we read it? Or by whom is the Word of God to be preached? Short answer, an ordained minister. Go to the short, larger catechism to read the expanded answer on that. Or the question, how is the Word of God to be preached by those who are called thereunto? In other words, when I go into the pulpit on the Lord's Day and open and read the Word of God and then begin to preach, how should I preach? Actually, and this is sort of funny because recently I was accused as a pastor of putting too much emphasis upon the preaching ministry at the church. And I'm like... You hadn't read the larger catechism. If you go to the larger catechism, you see, I'm barely catching up. There's a, there is a, a strong emphasis in our tradition, and we believe as emphasized in the Word of God, for the preached Word, the power of the preached Word, the efficacy of receiving that preached Word, so forth and so on. And again, the point is, is that there is power and efficacy in the Word of God. Will the unbeliever, who the Holy Spirit has not confronted and working in a regenerating way in their heart, will the unbeliever uh, understand this? No. Are we talking about how unbelievers receive the Word of God? No. We're talking exclusively about how you and I, as believers in Christ, receive the Word of God and we receive it with power and it does its work, its efficacy. The third area for us to talk about today, and we're doing okay on time, is the unity and harmony of Scripture. The unity... and harmony of Scripture. The Westminster Confession in the first chapter, point five, uh, uses this really short uh, phrase. This is a short expression, but this is what they're getting at. It says, the consent of all the parts. Um, And that's a really succinct way of, of saying that God's Word is unified, that it works together. Um, it's like uh, Susan said uh, before she had to leave for choir practice, said to me before the thing, she said, I was just reminded in, in the class last week of, of just over and over again uh, how we see Old Testament prophecies confirmed in the New Testament. And she, I think she's going through uh, a Bible study right now, maybe on Jeremiah or something like that. Anyway, she said, I'm just reminded of this in the middle of my study. But as God is a God of unity... As God is a God of harmony, what should we expect from His Word? We should expect a unity and harmony within His Word. Michael Kruger says, We would expect any document purporting to be the Word of God to be consistent with other revelation from God. In other words, we should, be, we should think that Scripture, uh, as if it says that it is Scripture, so also that it will agree with other Scripture. This is where we get the, uh, the Protestant doctrine of interpreting Scripture with what? With Scripture. And so uh, this is, the point is, is that you interpret Scripture with Scripture because it is Scripture. It's the, it's, the, it's the Word of God. And that if we find a conflict 
or what we consider to be uh, an inconsistency between it, it is not the problem of Scripture. Now, the unbeliever will often say, well, the Bible is full of inconsistencies and contradictions and so forth and so on. And we would say to that, uh, well, that may be your perception, but actually it's not. It doesn't mean that we always have the answers, and it doesn't mean that there aren't difficult parts of the Bible. Um, I've said that many times before, one of the things that I appreciate about preaching through uh, the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, is i got to go through hard parts of Scripture. And there are indeed hard parts of Scripture. But the problem is not the Word of God. The problem is, yeah, me, yeah, and, and you. Uh, the problem is, is that the word, the problem is us. We are fallen in our sin and therefore can cloud our judgment. But when we say that God's word is in, is consistent with itself, what do we mean? What do we mean when we say that God, God's word is consistent within itself? I want to give you three categories to think about. First of all, we're talking about doctrinal. Consistency. Doctrinal consistency. And I'll pause here for just a second before I go on to the other two. Uh, this is, for example, and I know a number of you, I think it was three or four, uh, came to me and said, um, what about Luther? Everybody always wants to throw the rascal in there. What about Luther? He, he thought we should get rid of James. And, and there were questions about Esther and, and so forth and, and so on. Um, well, the short answer is, is that keep in mind that Luther was on the front end of the Reformation and a recovering Roman Catholic priest. So you can always remember that. Second of all, you have to understand that some of the doctrines, doctrines that we have as Protestants have come through a better understanding of how God conveys His Word to us. For example, uh, Luther essentially, and I'm, this is John's so you, you can do greater research into this if you want to. Uh, but Luther said, if it is not explicitly Christological, if it's not explicitly uh, preaching the gospel, it explicitly presenting Christ, then it's not Scripture. And that's, that's what his problem was with the book of James. But the church came along and said, that's actually not the defining point. Indeed... Christ can be seen, albeit not explicitly, but implicitly within the book of James. And then the, the, the church then began to explain other aspects, that there is an integrity of doctrine, there is a, I used the word earlier, there it is, a redemptive historical uh, affirmation, of what the Word of God is, and then also structural. Structural. Think about it this way. And I'll start with this, this first one of doctrinal unity. Um, and, and I think it's helpful here to use the word, uh, because we hear this all the time, um, of orthodoxy. That which is orthodox that which is, is not. Um, orthodoxy, as, as we would use it, as Protestants, essentially means a way that God's revelation confirms itself. 
In other words, we would say that if there is, we'll pick on, for example, the Gospel of Thomas, if there is a a book that uh, does not uh, doctrinally unify with the rest of Scripture, it's unorthodox. It is not an orthodox uh, book. And we see the example of this within Scripture. I mean, think about the testimony in Acts chapter 17 of the Bereans. Um, Saul, I mean, rather Paul, had preached, and then how did the Bereans respond? You remember? Yeah, they, they, they went to the Old Testament Scriptures, and they took what Paul was preaching, and they examined it against Scripture, Right? And so the same idea is conveyed in this doctrinal unity and the idea of of orthodoxy. We examine things in accord to Scripture. So you think about this in terms of the the, the early church's reception of the New Testament canon. Uh, The early church is is looking at the New Testament books and they're looking at it, uh, we would hope, like the Bereans did, right? The, the church says, well, let's, let's examine these books against the Old Testament and see that there is doctrinal unity there. Uh, and so books cannot be canonical without being orthodox because the idea is that there is a doctrinal unity among them. And again, we'll just, we'll just pick on of two, two of, of, of Luther's examples. Um, is there a, a doctrinal unity and of, of Esther within the Old Testament? Sure. I mean, when you read, you read Esther, some of the complaints about it is explicitly uh, there's not the use of God, there's not Yahweh, there's not all of these different things that people will pick at it. You get done reading Esther and you go, that fits perfectly. That fits perfectly with the testimony of God's sovereign work His providential care of His people in working all things out for our good and His glory in the life of Esther and how God is faithful to protect and to save His people, so forth and so on. Uh, And so we see a testimony of that. And the same thing with with, with James. Uh, As we look at James and you conclude James and laying it against the testimony of Scripture, we find James uh, contra Luther that it is in fact orthodox. The second area, we're almost out of time, is redemptive historical unity. And the confession describes that this way. The full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation. The full discovery, the confession describing describing is the redemptive historical testimony. Uh, Michael Kruger says, Scripture from Genesis to Revelation tells the overarching redemptive story of God reconciling fallen humanity to Himself through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to get into this in in greater depth uh, next week, uh, but um, (laughs) it it is um, so contradispensational theology. It is a beautiful thing to look at Scripture as a whole and see the overarching narrative within Scripture, and then to do a study of Genesis and Revelation. Many of the things, in fact, I think in my study next week, I think I've listed 10, 
maybe 12 different things that are introduced in Genesis and then uh, brought to fulfillment in Revelation. Over and over and over again, we see this overarching, redemptive, historical narrative of Scripture. Robert Brawley says, The New Testament bears the character of a sequel. I, I like that. In our, our age of, of, of pop culture and movies, uh, that should speak to us, right? It, it's like we read the, the Old Testament and we get to Malachi and we go, there's something else coming. You know, it's like the, the, the binge on Netflix. There's got to be a season two, right? Well, there's better than a season two. There's a New Testament canon. And that's what Brawley's getting at. He goes on to say, the New Testament, New Testament bears the character of a sequel, presumes the continuation of the same story, and through the continuation, Israel's national story becomes universal. Uh, and that's, the, again, uh, that uh, redemptive historical narrative that Scripture delivers. And then finally, in terms of structural unity, we can think about this in two ways. We can think of it as covenantal structure, uh, meaning that, that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, that He has in fact made a covenant, for example, with, with Abraham, and this is how He works in uh, throughout Scripture, and we see how God works consistent with a covenantal structure. But then there's also the, what we might call a canonical structure. And again, the idea there is that the unity of the, of the whole, um, that that we, we don't need to sit around on Sunday mornings and, and wonder if the Book of Mormon is that one piece uh, that, that we're missing. Uh, that we know that God has worked in a way to deliver us a whole canon of Scripture and structurally it fits together in a perfect unity and a perfect harmony as a canon. So, that's in general what we talk about when we talk about the divine qualities of Scripture, how Scripture functions that we, through the testimony of the Holy Spirit, see Scripture as it is. Next week, what we're going to look at is this idea of the apostolic origins. And I know many of you have brought that up to me, and, and how, do, how do we know, or how, who, how was it delivered, and, and who delivered it, so forth and so on. And so we'll get into that next week. Let me pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for your word. And as we study it as a means of grace, uh, let us also remember that it is indeed powerful, it is indeed effective, that it is through the preaching of the word by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that we were saved. And we thank you for this. And we thank you that your word is crystal clear, that salvation is through Christ alone, through faith in Him alone, to Your glory alone. And we thank You that we have Your Word and that You have delivered it to us. Now we pray that we would be faithful students of it, that we would truly enjoy it in its, all of its beauty and excellency. And now we ask that You would prepare our hearts to worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.